<laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right, looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode, I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes that's right jsc exclusives you'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else for ten dollars or more per episode now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show you got a business you want me to talk about it i want you to sponsor my show for ten dollars hit me up send me the script i'm putting you over plus you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. It's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilt liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, Kiss stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. Woo! Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now! My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the best of. JSC Radio. Looking back at some of the weirdest and wildest and at times controversial takes of 2016. This show first premiered back in March and for the last nine months of this absolutely insane, bonkers, bananas, disturbing and very distressing year, JSC Radio has kind of been through a little bit of everything. By the way, remember, you can support me on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Radio. Follow me on Twitter at jscottsmith. Follow me on Instagram at jscottsmith. Snapchat, you know it, jscottsmith. All right, so let's get down to business. The subject matter of this best of edition of JSC Radio as we go back on 2016's biggest sports takes. I always kind of stay away from saying the term hot take. Hot take has become one of those trendy little things that gets thrown around the industry. Basically, a hot take is when somebody just says some shit right off the top of their head. 
They just say it. They don't think it. They just blurt it on out there. Often there's very little reasoning behind it. It's just something you say to try to provoke some sort of response from people. I'm not big into hot takes, as you've heard throughout the varying episodes of this show. Just go back to the episode I did on Carmelo not being drafted number two by the Pistons, for example. I don't, I, I don't traffic in hot takes. I traffic in logic. I like to study things. I like to let things breathe a little bit. And, you know, get some facts behind me. So this year has been the year of some really insane, in-the-membrane, wild-ass sports moments. Wild-ass takes. Wild-ass events. And that is where we're headed as this is JSC Radio's Best of 2016 in sports. And we start right here in the city of Philadelphia. Now, obviously, if you've been paying any attention for the last nine months, every original show that I do here is in the city of Philadelphia. So why not start here at the home base with going back to early April, one of my earliest sports takes, the winner of the NCAA championship game, the Villanova Wildcats. Exactly. The Villanova Wildcats, who, for some bizarre reason, don't get a boatload of love here in Philadelphia. I have just figured Villanova was going to be like this super huge celebration when they won here in Philly. Oh, no. Not at all. As you find out from this, quote-unquote, I hate using this term, but from this hot take following Villanova's win, we got to go all the way back to episode 6. As I talk about Villanova's incredible win to get the national title on a walk-off triple, as well as the city of Philadelphia's response to this thing, which just seems a little bit weird and a little bit wacky. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the best of JSC Radio. Villanova hadn't won a national title since 1985. They would make the tournament. They would threaten. Hell, they got to the Final Four in 2009 in Detroit when MSU was there. But they just could not get over the hump. But they're up 11 on UNC, and then the Tar Heels come all the way back. They get this just absurd three double-clutch three-pointer to go with 4.2 seconds left, and that just sets it up for Villanova, who has one more play to stave off OT and five more minutes of hell with North Carolina, and this happens. Gives it mid-court. Jenkins gives it to Jenkins for the championship. If there's any time, and boy, they've got a problem on their hands if they do, because the streamers, the confetti, they would have to clear it. Watch this. And the recognition of Arch finding Jenkins. Miscommunication it's by out. North Carolina. It's out. It's, it's, good. it's, it's good. all the way. How about that? The wow. officials on the far side have already walked away now after seeing it. Oh, a national championship buzzer beater for the title. Wowzers. Just wow. Wow, dude. I cannot recall 
And I don't think it had ever happened before. Wittenberg was the closest thing to it where you had a buzzer beater. Not, I mean, in his case, it was a buzzer beater put back. In Jenkins' case, it was just a step-up, man-sized, three-ball, game-over, series-over, Wildcats win, the Wildcats win. The only question I have is, why the hell wasn't somebody guarding the inbounder? Plays like that rarely end well when you don't guard the inbounder. It allowed the kid who got the inbound pass, Ryan Archidiakono. And by the way, you can only imagine how long it took me to learn how to pronounce that kid's name. But Ryan Archidiakono gets the ball, brings it up the floor. The two Tar Heel players close in on him, and he wheels around and kicks it to about as wide open a player as you can find in Jenkins. And by the time you can get somebody to run out on him, that shot's out of his hand. It's through the net. Game over. All hell breaks loose. And (laughs) Ratner Township, just outside of Philadelphia here, is going absolutely crazy. So all this has gone on off one damn shot. And Villanova wins a championship that I I ain't got nothing but respect for. They went out there and did it. I remember that night, now 16 years ago, when Michigan State won the national championship. East Lansing was on fire, not literally. It was on fire. It was amazing. Because we were at the Breslin Center that night, camped out. Because Michigan State hadn't won a national title since 1979 to that point. It was just an amazing, epic night. So congrats to those of you out there the Villanova faithful, the Wildcat faithful, those of you along the main line just outside here in Philadelphia. Big ups to you. I mean, it was a it was a crazy night. Villanova fans taking to the streets and celebrating and it was a it was a crazy night, but you guys earned it. You deserved it. I would much rather it had been Michigan State, but then again, I think about it, that's how it would have been Villanova Michigan State because North Carolina was on Michigan State side of that bracket. And I don't even know how I would have handled it if Michigan State gets all the way to the championship game and gets beat like that. I probably wouldn't be doing this show right now. I'd probably still be on the floor. (laughs) You probably would have had to transpose a crying Jordan face onto the JSC logo. So I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out would it have been better that MSU get all the way there just to get gun clapped at the finish or go out in the first round. You know what? I'd rather lose in the championship game because at least you get to the championship game. And I'm not going to sit here and make excuses for MSU, by the way. I'm not like those people down in Ann Arbor where every time they lose, it's 10,000 excuses. We got beat. We took it. It ain't fun. It's something that you'll never let us live down, but we got beat. And Villanova, congratulations. I will say this right before we close out this segment on Villanova. I got to ask the question, what the hell is wrong with Jim Nance? I like Jim Nance. I do. I like Jim Nance as a football announcer. I like the work he does with CBS, with the NFL. I like the work Jim Nance does on college basketball for the most part. But I don't know, have y'all seen this thing he did with Archie Diacono after the game? Archie Diacono was the most valuable player of the whole damn tournament and everything. He had the assist on the game winner, the, the whole tournament ender. Jim Nance is seen handing his tie. He takes his tie off his from around his neck. And I, I wear ties a lot, so that tie is sweaty and it's hot and it's ugh. He's taking this tie off and handing it to this kid and then just telling him, and just just telling him that how much he means to him, it just bestows it upon him. It was rather weird and kind of creepy. Well, Nance explained what the hell he was thinking. It's a, it's a personal Final Four tradition. The tie symbolizes a lot to me. My father, who taught me how to tie a tie, I just felt years ago that I wanted to do something to honor a senior on the team that wins the title to give them something to take home. I bring a new tie every year to the game, and I find a player who I'm inspired by everything about them, what they do on the floor, what they've done in the classroom. That was an easy one tonight. Uh, uh, what? 
You, you know what? No, no, no. We're going to run that back. Jim, I need you to explain to me again. Why are you handing this tie off to this kid? It's a, it's a personal Final Four tradition. Oh. Uh, okay. Strange. A little weird. Very weird. All right. I can only imagine that Mr. Archie Diacono likely is not going to frame that tie. He's not going to be busting that bad boy out for a job interview. He's not going to be using that thing to go to an awards banquet or something. Really, Jim? I'm just going to give him your tie? And this is not like, you know, a typical yearly thing. This is not like how at the end of the Thanksgiving football games, it used to be like an all-Madden award or they hand out turkey legs. No, you just kind of take it upon yourself to roll up on a dude just after they've won the biggest game of their life. And you hand him a tie? The hell's he supposed to do with the tie, dude? You want to you want to help him out? Scratch him off a check for how much you got paid to call the game that he's not getting paid to play in. Come on, Jim. Come on, bro. Got to be better than that. So Jim Nance didn't exactly come off looking like the greatest, which is really messed up because he's a hell of a play-by-play -play guy. But that was just, dude. No, that's not cool. Not at all. As we roll along here in this best of episode on JSC Radio. want to wish you guys a happy new year to Merry Christmas, by the way, because that's when this thing is coming out, in case you couldn't tell, right around Christmas time. Hope you guys enjoyed the Christmas episode we dropped, by the way, because, hell, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed being able to do that. But as we roll through 2016, let's jump from one basketball champion to another. And it was the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yes. That actually happened. Something I didn't think would ever happen. The city of Cleveland. Cleveland! Oh, God. And there's going to be, unfortunately, a lot of Cleveland happening in this, <laughs> in this best of show. But Cleveland, back in June, got their first championship of any variety since the Browns won their last NFL championship in 1964. When the Cavaliers came from 3-1 down, not sure if you heard about this, they were down 3-1 in the NBA Finals. Well, they came back to win. And I am still going to be a man of my word, and even though I don't care much at all for the city of Cleveland, as you will find out later on in this episode, I'm man enough to give props where it's due. So as we continue on, we're going to rewind the clock back to episode 12, where I talked about the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James, and J.R. Smith, and Timofey Mozgov, and Teron Liu, and the Cleveland Cavaliers winning the NBA title, doing it in absolutely shocking fashion. And of course, I espouse my love for my favorite city in Northeast Ohio. You're listening to the best of JSC Radio. There is no way you could have convinced me the Cleveland Cavaliers after they had just gotten what appeared to be their soul snatched at the end of Game 4 of the NBA Finals. Yes, we're playing catch-up this episode. There's no way you could have told me that that team would win three consecutive games against the Golden State Warriors, who won 73 regular season games, who appeared to have survived their lone test of the playoffs, going down 3-1 to the Oklahoma City Thunder, fighting all the way back, winning the final three games, two of them in Oakland, to win the Western Conference title and advance to their second consecutive NBA Finals. You couldn't have told me that that Cleveland team, which had looked like dog poop 
for three of the first four games was suddenly going to rip off three in a row, including a pair in Oakland. Now, yes, game five was mitigated because my fellow Spartan Draymond Green decided he wanted to take one more wanton swipe at LeBron James's jewels, and LeBron went tattletale to the NBA and they suspended him. So I'm willing to hang game five as one of those you charge to the game. But for the Warriors to not even bother to show up for the first quarter of game six, to essentially spot a team a 31-9 lead in the game that they need the most, their last home game either way, the game I figured the Warriors would win and close the damn show out, to go down 31-9, 31-11 officially after one quarter, that, that's shameful. That's shameful. And then naturally, of course, game seven of the NBA Finals was a darn burner, a dog fight. No Michael Vick. To the very damn finish, where Kyrie Irving, who you could argue, if not for the otherworldly performance of LeBron James, Kyrie Irving was really the MVP of that series. He hit big shot after big shot. It was his 41 that kept Cleveland from going home in game five. All right? And he hits the biggest shot of his life. 53 seconds left with Steph Curry running out on him. He hits the biggest shot of his life after neither team could score, it seems. They both got stuck on 89 for like three and a half minutes. Irving hits the triple. LeBron hits one free throw. And as you heard at the top of the show, that was it. The Cleveland Cavaliers, the city of Cleveland. Cleveland, which had gone through the shot and the fumble and the drive and Jose Mesa and the Browns leaving town. And dude, the getting swept in the NBA Finals in 2007, getting punched out in the NBA Finals last year on your home floor. The Cleveland Cavaliers of I mean, I guess if you were to pick a franchise that could have won a championship in that city, it would have had to have been the Cavaliers by default. They're the only one that legitimately has a pulse. Don't get me started on the Cleveland Indians. But still, it was surreal. The whole thing was surreal. It was surreal to them because I don't even think they expected to fully come back and win that series until they got it to a seventh game. But to see them win it, yeah, I admit, LeBron, who I'd already gained a rather large modicum of respect for, when he went to Miami and won those two titles. Yes, he was a heel. Yes, he was a bastard when he, the way he did Cleveland. But, and as the column I wrote for the griot.com, be sure to check that out, as the column I wrote for griot said, all is forgiven in Cleveland now. LeBron, his name is worth gold there. Period. He is the Kang of Northeast Ohio. He is the savior of that godforsaken city. That is Cleveland, Ohio. He did what nobody's been able to do. At least nobody since Jim Brown. And that's been able to win a title there. It set off a raucous celebration. Dude's crying on the floor. The crying Jordan face has now been joined by the crying LeBron. Kevin Love, who was dropping dimes, dropping dimes, but wasn't doing a damn thing for the first six and a half games of the series is hugging on him. He's walking around with an Austin 316 t-shirt and a smoking skull belt, double fist and beers. You got Richard Jefferson, who I forgot was in the NBA, smoking a victory cigar. You got damn J.R. Smith, who I think went three days without wearing a damn shirt. Was It's like everything broke right for them. So you know what? 
I, I'll show respect where it's due to LeBron James. He's a bad boy. He's a bad some bitch. I ain't going to sit here and say he's not. To do what he did in that series, to basically when nobody else on that team not named Kyrie Irving was basically a no-show, and even Irving was a no-show for a couple of games, which is probably the reason why he was an MVP, it, that, it was, it was otherworldly. He had to completely... He had to completely hulk out. He had to go Super Cena. He had to become Superman or Iron Man or the Incredible Hulk or Captain America or whatever superhero you want to toss in there. I loved comparing Steph Curry to Goku, but LeBron was sell, and he reached his final form in games 5, 6, and 7 of the NBA Finals. Like I said, I wrote a column for thegrio.com. Be sure to check that out on thegrio.com. It's entitled, All is Forgiven for LeBron James in Cleveland because after that disastrous, disastrous decision six years ago, you couldn't have told me, I don't think you could have told him that he would win an NBA championship in Cleveland by knocking off the team that was coming off the best regular season in NBA history and was within an eyelash of completing the full-on trick. Sorry, old fogies. Sorry, purists. If they won that game, they would have eclipsed everyone. But they didn't. They fell flat on their face at the worst possible time and gave it away. And now I have to deal with these morons in Cleveland having actually won a championship. Go ahead and jump on places like Deadspin or go on YouTube and see some of the really lovely things that the people in the city of Cleveland were doing during that championship parade, including one man deciding he wanted to snack on some poop. And yes, I have said before, pretty much eating a handful of crap is essentially what living in Cleveland is like anyway, but that guy actually did it. Big ups to the Cavaliers. Big ups to LeBron James. F you, Cleveland. You still suck. Come on now, did you really think I was going to get through that whole thing without throwing the requisite amount of shade in the direction of that city? No chance. Coming up after this break, we're going to continue the theme as we look at the aftermath of that NBA Finals and one of the biggest ripple effects from that NBA Finals and those NBA playoffs is Kevin Durant jumping ship in Oklahoma City. Plus, ain't no way I was going to get through a best of 2016 without talking about those damn Detroit Lions. My name is J. Scott Smith and you're listening to JSC Radio, the people's podcast Best of edition. We'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Hey now, it's J. Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows, such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. 
It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. This is very similar, I think, to what LeBron did. So I I can't rip KD for this. Well, I'm not. Listen, I'm rip. I'm not ripping him for leaving. First of all, I'm ripping him for the team that he went to. You're going to the team that beat you when you were 48 minutes away on three separate occasions from beating them yourself. It's not that he's leaving Oklahoma City. It's the team that he's going to. And Chris Broussard, you've covered this league too long. I don't know how in God's name you can sit there and say <laughs> that it's a similar situation how to what LeBron, LeBron experienced was the best in Cleveland. In the league. LeBron, and, and, no, no, LeBron no, 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 is being whoa, compared whoa, 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 to Michael Jordan. Who, who, and you who's know on the, the team? criticism LeBron hold on, hold on, took, which is question, similar Chris. to what you're saying. Answer my, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, go I'm ahead. I'm asking a question. All right. What Tell is me it? who was LeBron James' teammates. Who are they? They were good enough to help him get yeah, 66 on, no, no, no. wins. I asked you a question. All right. It's a direct question, Mo, Chris. He, he didn't have a Russell Westbrook. He Mo, didn't have a Russell Westbrook. Keep going. Hold on, Steve. Could they not have beaten Boston? It's not the same. And not only that, there were more things that were going on in Cleveland on a personal level, which you know just as well as anybody that influenced LeBron leaving Cleveland, too. What's KD's excuse? Are you kidding me? You're listening to the best of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. I'm J. Scott Smith. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. If you're so inclined, happy Kwanzaa. I'm here kicking this best of shh towards you as we head into 2017. And get the hell out of 2016. But this was an interesting year. This show, like I said, debuted back in March. And by the way, you can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Stitcher Radio. And of course, you can find it on the mothership, soundcloud.com slash JSC Radio. Again, be sure to show love to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Working on getting some actual sponsors and getting some money behind this show want to get in on the ground level of this thing because it is going to be massive and no this ain't no blessing loom ponzi scheme this is real shit you actually get a real product out of this thing and no you don't need to get money from three or four friends don't do that don't fall for that that that's just dumb so first segment of this best of looked at basketball this is a basketball heavy show which is funny because I've talked about all sorts of stuff, and we'll get into that a little bit later on in this Best Of Edition, but keeping with the basketball theme, when we last left you, we were talking about the Cleveland Cavaliers having just won the NBA Finals. Well, a couple weeks after they won, NBA free agency started, and Kevin Durant decided that he was going to make a bold-ass move and leave the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he left to go to the Golden State Warriors, the same Warriors who put a hot one in his thunder just three weeks earlier. And boy, did the old schoolers and the fake tough guys and all the we're going to be loyal dudes just get their panties in a bunch. I'm sorry. What Katie did was brilliant. We're going to roll the clock back to episode 13, and we're talking about Kevin Durant making one of the best business decisions of his life. I'm J. Scott Smith, and you're listening to the best of the People's Podcast This is JSC Radio. Kevin Durant left for a better job. To those of you 
who love to evoke the halcyon days of the 1980s when, oh, you never would have seen Isaiah leave to go to the Lakers or Boston if he couldn't win. You wouldn't have seen Michael Jordan wouldn't run to Detroit. Well, yeah, of course not. Because back then, NBA free agency isn't what it is now. And a lot of these old geezers who played back in the 80s and 90s can jump bad and talk tough and be total hypocrites like they always are. But if the NBA's financial climate in 1991 or 1988 or 1994 was the way that it is now, I guarantee you Reggie Miller doesn't spend 18 years in Indianapolis. He didn't want to go to the Pacers in the first place. He's openly said it. Charles Barkley, he's got some nerve coming after Kevin Durant considering the way he strong-armed his way out of Philadelphia in 1993 to go to Phoenix and just to get beat by Jordan in the finals anyway. I think if any, if there's any one old school guy that I believe would have hopped on a gravy train, it was Charles Barkley. I really believe that. If Barkley were able to get the max money and could go anywhere he wanted, do you really think he would have stayed in Phoenix? No. Do you really think he would have stayed in Philly? Hell no. As much as he used to ride the coattails of Michael Jordan, you know damn well there would have been a number 34 wearing a Bulls uniform, and I'm not talking about Charles Oakley. He'd have gone to Chicago. He would have. And for those of you who like to evoke the 1980s and, oh, there weren't any super teams and they weren't possing up with a bunch of Hall of Famers to go chase a ring, hey, newsflash geniuses, have you ever take a look at some of those rosters from those teams? How quickly we forget that every single NBA final from 1980 through to 1989, every single one of those championship series had either one or both of these teams, the Los Angeles Lakers or the Boston Celtics. Only twice during the 1980s did a Western Conference champion make the finals that was not named the Los Angeles Lakers, and both times it was the Houston Rockets. And both times they lost to, guess who? The Boston Celtics. Larry Bird. You people talk about, well, Bird wouldn't have just jumped on with a couple of Hall of Famers to chase a ring. He didn't have to. In the stretch of time that Bird played in Boston, he had five, count them, five teammates who ended up in the Hall of Fame. Let me say that again. Five. Y'all getting mad at Kevin Durant because he's teaming up with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green. Larry Bird dropped into Boston and he already had Tiny Archibald. He already had Dave Cowens. He eventually would get Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale and friggin' Dennis Johnson. And of course, I always have to, whenever I say the name Dennis Johnson, I think of that damn steal at the end of the game in the 1987 Eastern Conference Finals. It still gives me flashbacks. Then let's head out west to LA. Magic Johnson drafted by the LA Lakers in 1979. You love it, I love it. We all loved it in East Lansing. Todd worked. Magic had three Hall of Fame teammates. You know, the same amount that Durant had. The Magic wouldn't have left to go join up with Bird and Isaiah. He didn't need to. He had three Hall of Famers on his damn team. He had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jamal Wilkes, James Worthy. Those are three Hall of Famers, and we're not even factoring in guys like Byron Scott and Michael Thompson. Uh, Stop. Stop. Bob McAdoo. Bob McAdoo's another one. So actually he had four. Oh, and for for those of you fake tough guys in Detroit who love to act like the Pistons were this hard scrabble team, no, the bad boys were routinely putting at least three future Hall of Famers on the floor. Look at the 1989 Pistons, the first champion, the bad boy team, the first bad boy championship team. 
you have Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Dennis Rodman, all in the Hall of Fame. It was actually four for a while because Adrian Dantley played half the season on that damn team. So you had four Hall of Famers at one point out there for the Detroit Pistons, and you could at least make the case that the guy that Dantley got traded for, Mark Aguirre, could be a Hall of Famer. So, so what are we saying here? Even the Philadelphia 76ers, the fourth team, and the only other team in the, in the 1980s to win an NBA title, had Julius Serving and Moses Malone. So this ridiculous idea that all these super teams are brand new, get out of here. I mean, hell, during the 19... 1950s and 60s, it was the Boston Celtics winning every damn season. During the 1990s, yes, the Bulls were a really good team. And people forget in the 80s, yeah, you had four NBA champions and essentially three overall contending teams that were just there every single year. Lakers, Pistons, Celtics. The Bulls don't show up till later on in the decade. In the early half of the decade, it was the Sixers. Plus in the West, even though the Lakers won the West every damn year, save for two, you had the Houston Rockets, who, by the way, were running around with Ralph Sampson and Hakeem, at different stretches with Ralph Sampson, Hakeem Olajuwon, and the aforementioned Moses Malone, who forced a trade to Philadelphia. You know, kind of like how Barkley forced a trade to Phoenix. For those of you who get on Kevin Durant, get off of him. Stephen A. Smith has an agenda because he's got a personal issue with Kevin Durant to begin with. Kevin Durant did what any of you lazy, sorry individuals would have done. If you're working at a job that pays you really well, you like the people you work with, you get pretty good benefits, but you don't really see a chance to go any further than where you are. Then all of a sudden, the bigger company down the street with a proven record of success, and yes, along the way, they outdid you suddenly says, hey man, we'd love to have you. And we're willing to pay you more money than you've ever seen and give you an opportunity to go further in your particular career than you've ever gone before. That's what Kevin Durant did. And for any of you who will sit here and say, I'd have stuck it out, I'd have been loyal. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna be loyal to a, to, I'm gonna be loyal to an organization that wasn't even loyal to the city where it first came from. And uh, you want I'm gonna, I'm gonna been, he should have been loyal, he should have stuck it out, okay. Here, here's what loyalty gets you. It gets James Harden traded after you finally make the NBA Finals. It gets James Harden shipped out to a conference rival, Houston. Loyalty gets you Serge Ibaka shipped off to Orlando. And let's just assume Durant decides he wants to re-sign for a boatload of money and stay in Oklahoma City. Guess who's getting shipped out next? Russell Westbrook. He's gone. And all of a sudden, Kevin Durant is standing around looking at Victor Oladipo and Kyle Singler and and the Pringles man himself, Stephen Adams, and thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Kevin Durant didn't want to be Charles Barkley or Patrick Ewing or Reggie Miller or Allen Iverson. Kevin Durant wants to be Kobe Bryant and Steph Curry and LeBron James. Hell, I wish the Pistons were good enough where he could have tried to show up in Detroit. Big ups to Kevin Durant. Get your paper, get your ring. And to you lazy, sorry, sad excuses for people, you fake tough guys who never made the team or never won anything in your life, saying, be loyal, if you, be loyal, be loyal. To what? Sports is a business, and you're only as loyal as your options. You ain't gonna sit here and tell me where, where you're able to make a move in your career. You're gonna, you'd rather stay in the same old place that's why a lot of y'all are still in the same old place now. I felt that way then, and I continue to feel that way now. Why the hell are you sitting out here talking about be loyal, be loyal? You want to know 
what loyalty gets you. Loyalty gets you looking like a moron. You want to know another example of the whole being loyal, you got to be loyal thing. And this is an original, original take that I'm laying out there for you guys right now. Coaches in college, for example. Because as I'm recording this, a couple of high-profile college football players, Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey, have decided that they're not going to play in one of these meaningless bowl games that's about to come up during this week. They're not doing it. Why? They're preparing for the NFL draft. And I just cannot believe that there are people who have an issue with this. But yet, yet, they take no umbrage to a coach doing it. Because coaches are just able to quit a team after their last regular season game or after their conference championship game. They can just up and bail on their team and take another gig and say, well, it's business and peace out. Guess what? The players are getting hip to it. Why the hell would I risk an NFL career, a lucrative contract, to go play in the Weed Eater Bowl or the Kellogg's Frosted Flakes Bowl or whatever stupid corporate website name bowl that you can think of in late December that means nothing to nobody. If it's not a college football playoff game, the game don't matter. So why am I going to risk wasting a potential NFL contract on a game that don't count and I'm not getting paid? but the coaches will be the first ones to tell you to be loyal. And you want to know who else is loyal? Detroit Lion fans. You knew I was going to get to them. It had to be. I did multiple episodes this year involving the Lions. Made multiple references to the Detroit Lions. As I record this, the Lions are in the midst of possibly winning their first division championship since 1993. Or they could be in the midst of giving it all back and screwing it up. Boy, you'll want to know how that turns out? Wait for the next original episode of the People's Podcast coming in January. But first things first. Episode 16, I decided to go into detail about my love for the Detroit Lions. Or should I say, my tolerance of them. This is the best of the People's Podcast. You're listening to JSC Radio. Cut that loyalty shit out. I came in in 1990, where the Lions went 6-10, and 10, the halcyon days of guys like Bob Galliano and Rodney Pete at quarterback. Oy, the fact that I even remember this. And Barry was the only reason that the Lions were even interesting to me. And again, I'm 10 years old, almost 11. I don't really have, I'm 11 years old, really. I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of an idea of what football is about. I just knew when you gave that ball to number 20, magic happened all the time, all day, at least twice on Sundays. That's how it worked. Even when the Lions didn't win, and they went six and ten that season, so they didn't do a whole hell of a lot of winning. But even when the Lions didn't win, Barry was worth the price of admission. That year was the first year I went to the Thanksgiving Day football game. It was the Lions and the Denver Broncos. It was amazing, yes. The John Elway Denver Broncos. I was hooked. The atmosphere at the Silverdome, which was home to WrestleMania 3, amongst other things, was just electric. And this is for a team that wasn't really that good. Now, the following year, 1991, that year, the Lions, after getting 
their faces ripped off in the in the season opener. They go down to Washington and get beat 45 to nothing. It was just an absolute wipeout. The Lions come back home and beat the Miami Dolphins, beat Dan Marino, because at the time I didn't know a whole lot about football, but I knew two players. I knew Joe Montana and I knew Dan Marino. And I liked Dan Marino because he could throw that football. And when the Lions beat him, I was shocked. The Lions went on this run this particular year. After getting their faces blown off, as I mentioned, in Washington, they then turned around, won the next four games. By the time we get to the Thanksgiving Day game, they're neck and neck with the Chicago Bears, who pretty much were the preeminent team in that division at the time because there was no Brett Favre in Green Bay, and the Vikings were who the Vikings have largely always been. So it was the Bears and then the Lions. And on Thanksgiving Day, the two teams played. And again, we were in the Silverdome for this game, and it was unreal. It was unreal. I'd never been in a sporting event that loud. It was so loud you could feel the building physically shake. It was unbelievable. And the one play I will always remember, it's funny, it's 25 years later, I can still remember this. The Lions had a punter named Jim Arnold. Jim Arnold takes a snap, and this didn't happen a whole lot in the NFL. In fact, it still really doesn't. Jim Arnold goes back to punt, takes the snap, and fakes it, and ends up running it for about 25 yards. The building exploded. It was unbelievable. The Lions end up winning that game. They end up finishing the regular season with a 12-4 record. The Detroit Lions, 12-4. If that sounds a little outlandish, that's because it was the single greatest regular season in the franchise's history has not been matched since only once if they come close strangely enough it was that Lions team two years ago which wasn't even a third as good as the 12 and 4 team from 1991 that Lions team then goes on to make the playoffs win the division and won a playoff game won the playoff game let me stress this one more time they won the playoff game they beat the Dallas Cowboys this is a young Cowboy team that has the likes of Emmitt Smith Michael Irvin Troy Aikman I mean, they had some ballers on this team, and the Lions blew their doors off. It was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen, and I still will never forget that after this game ended, my mother is sitting at the kitchen table having watched the Lions for what I had only assumed was a few years struggle. She's in tears. There are tears in her eyes as she watches the Lions finish off this 38-6 beat-em-down of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm kind of uninitiated. I'm just barely 12 years old, and I'm looking at her like, Mama, what's going on? She was just stunned, and it shocked me because I hadn't even thought about this. That's the first time they've won a playoff game since I was in high school. My mother was in high school in 1957. 1957. The Lions had not won a playoff game to that point since before the end, the legal end of Jim Crow. We were just on the other side of Brown versus Board of Education the last time the Detroit Lions had won a playoff game until that day in January of 1992. Think about that. Every NFL team stumbles into a playoff win at some point. The Lions, who had barely made the playoffs that often in that stretch. In fact, that 1991 team, that was only the third time they had made the playoffs since William Clay Ford bought the team. Ford bought the team in 1964, they made the playoffs in 1970, 1983, and 1991. 70 and 83, they lost. 90, 91, they actually won that game. Now, as of course it always would go for the Lions, they then go to D.C. Again, the site of the massacre that opened the season, 
took a 10-7 lead in the NFC Championship game, and then got splattered all over the place like they did in Week 1. Barry Sanders and Brett Perriman and Herman Moore and Willie Green and Eric Kramer and Chris Spielman and Jerry Ball, all those Lions, the single greatest Lion team post-1950s, lost in the NFC Championship game. This year, the Lions are going to honor that team. Now, if that sounds a little silly, it's because it is. Because since then, the Lions... Now, the 90s were actually good to the Lions because that kind of coincided with Barry's prime. Barry Sanders was the main reason to watch the Lions. The Lions made the playoffs six times in the 1990s, won two division titles, but they never won another playoff game. And by 2001, in comes Matt Millen, and we all know how that ended. I went from being the optimistic... Lion fan because I was a kid because I was a kid and a teenager during the 1990s and watching them win eight nine and ten games in a season and go to the playoffs only to get their head torn off as soon as they got there I mean who can forget when they came out here to Philadelphia and got a shotgun shoved in their mouth they find a way to disappoint you all the time but as a teenager I wasn't jaded I'm thinking this happens of course they'll win another playoff game next year will be their year it's going to come together. Oh, the referees were against them. Oh, they just came up a little short, but 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 I love my Lions. The 2000s, that kind of gave way. And I can give you the exact point in time when I just knew the Lions basically didn't give a shit about their fans. And in turn, I slowly stopped really giving a shit about them. Oh, I'll watch. I'll find ways to watch. I'll find ways to listen. But the idealistic, the thought of, hey, they could do it. Don't. How can you criticize them? They're our team. Those are our boys. And now it's like, no, 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 dude. I get it. I get it now. 2005. The Lions had just come off of what was the end of their fifth 10-plus loss season under Matt Millen. In fact, every season under Matt Millen had 10 losses or more to that point. And in the midst of a angry fan revolt, I still remember this because I was working in Lansing at the time, working in Lansing, Michigan at the time, and I even remember pointing out that there was a bit of an issue here with the fan revolt. It was called the Millen Man March. It was led by WDFN, sports radio station in Detroit. I interned there for a little bit in 2004. They led this fan revolt, and it got nasty. It was the final home game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals were in the midst of their kind of revitalization season. They were on their way to the playoffs. The Lions were just being the Lions, and they were in the midst of yet another season of 10 losses. I think that year they lost 13 games. I can't remember, it was 12 or 13 games, because all those 10-loss seasons ran together after a while. And in the midst of this angry fan revolt, where you have fans wearing bags over their head, anti-Matt Millen signs, booing every chance they get, billboards going up outside of Ford Field, everything you could think of to let you know that the fans wanted him gone. Plus, you look at the one-loss record. Plus, you look at the questionable to flat-out terrible moves in the draft and the awful PR with former receiver Johnny Morton and Millen dropping a gay slur on him. Everything you can think of points to that man being fired. He's had no success, and the Lions have shown no inclination they're getting any better. William Clay Ford comes out the following day after this awful seat at Ford Field and announces he's signing the man to an extension. I like him. And I like the direction this team is going in. Three years later, they went 0-16. And even in the midst of that 0-16 season, 
it took Ford's kids to intervene to fire Matt Millen. That was the exact point when the Lions had lost me. Not totally lost me, but the days of me buying Lions jerseys and Lions hats and Lions tickets. Nah, B, that that ain't working. That ain't happening. I haven't been to a Lions regular season game in more than 10 years, and it ain't going to start anytime soon. Doesn't help I'm in Philadelphia, but you know what I mean. So what about this year? Because, I mean, since they finally got rid of Millen, albeit in typical Lion fashion, when they got rid of Matt Millen, all they did was hire his stooge understudy, Martin Mayhew, to essentially do all the same stupid things that Matt Millen was doing, except, you know, blacker. The, the best draft pick Matt Millen made was Calvin Johnson, and it was a draft pick so obvious even he couldn't screw it up. Well, Calvin Johnson retired at the end of last season. Calvin Johnson, who was one of the last remaining members of that 0-16 team, by the way. Think about how bad you have to be to have a team go 0-16, and that team had Calvin Johnson. Young Calvin Johnson. Young, non-beaten-up Calvin Johnson on it. Think about that. Well, that Calvin Johnson's gone. And the Lions are two years removed from that flukish 11-5 season, which even I didn't believe that they were as good as that record. But hell, they won 11 games somehow. The Lions, they of the two winning seasons since the turn of the century. The Lions, they of the two playoff appearances since the turn of the century. The Detroit Lions, who when most franchises hang banners for winning division titles, conference titles, Super Bowls. The Lions hang banners for playoff appearances. You think I'm lying. Google Detroit Lions playoff banner and you will see a picture of a lonely ass Detroit Lion and it says playoffs 2011. That's not a fan made banner. That's not photoshopped. That some bitch is actually hanging in Ford Field right now. I'm out here in Philadelphia and I got to listen to Eagle fans piss and moan and complain about Andy Reid getting them to conference title games and losing. I got to sit here and listen to them piss and moan and complain about the Eagles never having won a Super Bowl. Check this out. Do you know the unsavory things I would do to somebody if the Detroit Lions had the Philadelphia Eagles kind of luck? Eagle fans are complaining about Andy Reid getting them to conference title games and not winning. I've seen the Lions in one conference title game and they got their head knocked off their shoulders. They ain't been close to one since. There have only been maybe two instances where they were even within earshot of winning a playoff game in the last 25 years. And I'm really not feeling like bringing up the one in Dallas because it might make me punch somebody. So what do I have to say about the Lions now? Am I overly optimistic and excited? No. Their head coach is a jackass and a moron and a buffoon. In the open of this entire show, you heard Aaron Rodgers hit that Hail Mary for the ages last year. The thing that bothered me, and the thing I will close this segment out with, is that Jim Caldwell, the head coach of the Detroit Lions, the guy who maybe was the most unworthy of ever getting a team to a Super Bowl in Indianapolis, he was literally handed a Super Bowl-caliber team by Tony Dungy, who just couldn't coach anymore. He gave it to Jim Caldwell. All Caldwell had to do was sit there with that dopey-ass look on his face and let the Colts do the rest of the work. And they damn near did it. If not for an onside kick and a Peyton Manning interception, Jim Caldwell would have been the least deserving Super Bowl winning coach in NFL history. When left to his own devices without Peyton Manning, he's done nothing. But yet he has the nerve to be smug and obnoxious and condescending and arrogant to people in Detroit. Especially toward fans and reporters, which really makes no sense. But that's the Lions' M.O. And I've really noticed it in the last five, six years. They have this really bad habit of being smug 
and rude and condescending and dismissive toward reporters and toward fans who want them to do more. So any team that's led by Jim Caldwell, just using that one play, that Hail Mary that I just referenced, everybody in the building, everybody across the country, because that was a nationally televised game, everybody knew that Aaron Rodgers, given 15 extra yards, yes, it wasn't a face mask, it was bullshit, but again, that's the kind of karma the Lions carry around. You give him 15 extra yards. This is a guy who's capable of flat-footed throwing a ball at least 65 yards. You gave him 15 extra, untimed down. Only Jim Caldwell seemed to think that the Packers were not going to throw a Hail Mary, but they were going to once again attempt to hook and lateral the damn thing up the field like Cal Stanford. The only guy on the planet who actually didn't think Aaron Rodgers, oh my God, I get choked up, could throw a damn football 60 plus yards. The sumbitch stood there and threw the ball 70 yards, flat-footed. He got one block from one of his linemen, stepped out to his right, and unloaded a nuclear bomb into the end zone. And the Lions were just being as smug and obnoxious as ever until Aaron Rodgers hit a pass for the ages to Richard Rodgers, no relation, standing untouched two feet inside the goal line for the touchdown. That's what a Detroit Lion fan's life is like. And see, it's funny now because as I record this, once again, the Lions could be on the verge of setting themselves up to get Rogered one more time because their regular season ends with those damn Green Bay Packers at Ford Field on New Year's Day. My God, what the hell? Coming up, After this quick break, oh yes, you're getting a third segment on this Best Of show, talking World Series. And after having to put Cleveland over, somewhat, for winning the NBA title, I get to bury their ass. Plus, I show love to the Chicago Cubs for breaking that 108-year curse. My name's Jay Scott Smith, and this is the Best of the People's Podcast. You're listening to JSC Radio. We'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon, and what Patreon is, it's going to help you, the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan, contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right, looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode. I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JSC exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business, you want me to talk about it, I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. It's 
$25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Double zone, extremely deep in left, Fowler deep in center, Hayward not quite as deep in right. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time, and the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout, jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. The longest drought in the history of American sports is over, and the celebration begins. It's never felt better to fly the W. You're listening to the best of JSC Radio. That's right, the People's Podcast. Back at you. Jay Scott Smith here. I wanted to take a second before we get off into this final segment of this show, by the way, to thank all of you who listen. And I know I do that every show, but I feel the need to especially do it again. I want to thank you guys for helping me maintain through these first nine tough-ass months in what has been an unbelievably tough-ass year. So all of you, whether you subscribe on iTunes, whether you've been listening to me on SoundCloud, whether you've been rolling with me on Stitcher even, I just want to thank all of you. I also want to thank the, the women who have come on this show and done interviews with me, by the way, and that best of is also coming. I want to thank Adrian Lawrence and Janae Darden and, of course, my favorite femme feminista, Lara Witt, for coming on this show as well. So I want to get off a thank you, a big-ass thank you to everybody who supported this show and gotten behind your boy and helped make this first, not a full year, of the People's Podcast really, really slamming. So, as you heard there coming out of the break... This segment is talking about the World Series. In episode 22, I talked about the World Series, which may be the best World Series I've seen in ages. And that's saying something. I thought the 2011 World Series was amazing. This damn World Series in 2016 was just unbelievable. And it was capped off with one of the best Game 7s, one of the most pressure-packed Game 7s ever seen in Major League Baseball. And it culminated, as you heard there, with the Chicago Cubs winning their first world championship in 108 years. It's just magnificent. So the first part of this takes a look at the love I showed to the new champs. Because, because as I always like to say on this show, to the victor goes the spoils. You're listening to the best of the people's podcast. You're listening to JSC Radio. I've seen some incredible baseball games in my lifetime and I've mentioned on this show on numerous occasions that I'm a lifelong baseball fan baseball comes first always has always will for me it was always baseball then basketball then football apparently I was a bit of a weirdo because I like baseball first well what you saw on Wednesday night 
bleeding over into Thursday morning is why I love baseball. Games like that, the energy that comes off of a seventh game in the World Series. One would argue the only postseason game that has more drama in it would be Game 7 of, say, the Stanley Cup Finals. Because everything hinges on one wrong move, one wrong play. In this case on Wednesday night, it was one wrong move, one bad pitch, one bad decision could change your fortunes, and then you ratchet it up by putting the two teams with effectively the two longest droughts, championship droughts, I should say, in the sport. You put those together, and you get one gigantic ball of tension that was just unreal. Yes, I'm from Detroit. So clearly, for two different reasons, the the horse I had in this race was for damn sure not in Northeast Ohio. But we'll get to them second half of this show. The Chicago Cubs, to me, yes, I know they're in the third largest media market. And yes, I know they're in the higher end of the third largest media market. And yes, I know that for so many of those 108 years, this franchise wasn't even friggin' competitive. They had stretches. Okay, let's let's remember. Even after they won the 1908 World Series, they ended up making, they made nine other appearances in the World Series after that. It wasn't like they won that World Series and then this was the first time they were back. They made it to the World Series nine more times. Came up totally short. Prior to this year, their last appearance in the World Series was in 1945 when hmm, certain franchise in the Motor City was the one that knocked them off. Actually, certain franchise in the Motor City knocked them off twice. But that's for neither here nor there. And they also won in 1935. But the thing is, the Cubs were actually a really good franchise to that point. And then they fell off the table from 1945 all the way to basically 1969. They hadn't even as much as really gotten a sniff of a National League pennant. And then 1969 gets there and they have the misfortune of running into the Miracle Mets and the Black Cat. And all the stuff of the curses really started to take hold about that point. They go through the 70s, basically meaningless. We get into the 1980s and 1984 shows up. They go on a magical run of their own. They win the division. They get to the playoffs. They win the first two games of the then best of five National League Championship Series. And unlike today, the National League Championship Series, which is best of five, had this very odd quirk to it. The team with home field played the first two games on the road, then got the next three games at their place. If that sounds a little backwards, it's because it is. Well, Cubs won the first two games of that NLCS and then went out to San Diego for three games and lost all three. Just imagine that. And I mean, the most brutal part of it was the last two losses were just, just grotesque. I mean, Leon Durham is a name that strikes, it strikes a chord with a lot of Cub fans. Cubs, amazingly, would have ended up facing, you know who, the same team that had beaten them in 1935 and 1945 had they somehow made it in 1984. Cubs make the playoffs again in 1989. They get knocked off by the Giants. And then that's it for them. You don't see the Cubs again in the postseason until 1998. They get there in 1998. Lose. Then came 2003. We all know what happened in 2003. It was the Cubs who blew what was a 3-2 series lead coming back from Miami against the then Florida Marlins. 
They were leading 3-1 to one in the 7th, and then Bartman happened. And the whole damn thing was foobar from that point. The Cubs lost Game 6, lost Game 7, and to further compound the indignity, it was the Marlins featuring a very young and much thinner Miguel Cabrera winning the World Series that year against the New York Yankees. Cub fans have been through a lot. I can relate to Cub fans' struggle, despite the fact that, yes, I know, they're in the third largest media market. And yes, I know, they are on the high end of the third largest media market. Yes, I get all that. I feel for the Cubs, and I kind of felt a bit of a kinship with the Chicago Cubs, because the Chicago Cubs, in a lot of ways, reminded me of the Detroit Lions. Now, hear me out. Both the Cubs and the Lions, for years and years and years and years and years, had inept, moronic, confused, flat-out terrible ownership. And terrible ownership, and terrible ownership made terrible decisions, such as in who they hired for general manager, who they hired as manager, and who those people brought in as players. They went through indignities of years and years and years of losing and last place finishes. They have dedicated, loving, at times delusional, fan bases. The difference between the two is, a few years ago, the Cubs were bought by the Ricketts family, not exactly the most upstanding people, but that's another conversation for another time. They were bought from the Tribune Company by the Ricketts family, and the Ricketts immediately went out and got themselves two people, Theo Epstein and Joe Madden. Theo Epstein is a friggin' monster. He's an absolute animal. Theo Epstein is the man. They brought him in and he made it clear it's going to suck for a couple years, but once we get this thing together, we're going to win. Epstein had the same approach with the Boston Red Sox, who coincidentally were working on a pretty lengthy run of not winning World Series themselves. Epstein then turned around and brought in Joe Madden, the guy I wanted the Tigers to make a move for a couple of years ago when Jim Leland retired. Madden came in, joined a team that was coming off a 73-win season, a team that was two seasons removed, from a 101 loss season in 2012, he took over a team that won 73 games in 2014. They won 24 more games, 97 wins. It, it was like everything just went kaboom, and they took off. They get to the National League Championship Series last year where they were shockingly swept by the New York Mets, but you could see something there. And for the first time, really, probably since the early part of the 20th century, the Cubs actually weren't just out there being the quote-unquote lovable losers. They were out there trying to win. None of this BS like, oh, we have one good season, let's rest on our laurels and not pay any players, and let's just keep the band together and not make any improvements. No, 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 no. The Cubs smelled blood in the water after losing the NL pennant last year. Not often do you hear of a team winning 97 games, improving the following season. The Cubs won 103 games this year. And if not for that wonky, dumbass All-Star Game rule where the winner of the All-Star Game gets home field advantage in the World Series, that scene you saw on Wednesday night into Thursday morning would have been taking place in Wrigley Field instead of at Jacobs Field, excuse me, Progressive Field, in Cleveland. The Cubs say what you will. Did that franchise spend a lot of time resting on its laurels? Sure. Did it spend a lot of time resting on the fact that they have some of the most rabid, loyal fans on the planet yes could things have changed if those fans made a little bit more noise over time maybe who knows but the thing about the cubs and why i get behind them had the tigers been in the world series clearly you know i'd probably be in a much different mood because i'm always going to be number one for them but i respected the cubs this year especially because they finally got the it's like you could tell that franchise from top to bottom got the memo 
You've got a fan base that's effing rabid, that's wanted a champion for more than a century, 108 years. Historically black fraternities and sororities, better known as the D9, Alpha Phi Alpha, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Omega Psi Phi, Delta Sigma Theta, Phi Beta Sigma, Go Mob, Zeta Phi Beta, what up Sororors, Sigma Gamma Rho, Kappa Alpha Psi, and Iota Phi Theta. All those organizations, they make up the Divine Nine. When the Cubs last won the World Series, it was the Divine Two. The AKAs and Alpha Phi Alpha were the only ones there. Mark Twain was still alive. Teddy Roosevelt was president. Ford Motor Company, ha ha ha, Ford. The Ford Motor Company was introducing the Model T. Bruh, the Cubs, even when you look at 1945, it had been so long since the Cubs had been in the World Series that they were the only Major League franchise to have not been in a World Series since the league officially integrated in 1947. So when Dexter Fowler stepped to the plate in Game 1 in Cleveland, it was the first time a Chicago Cub black player had come to bat in a World Series. This franchise, it took forever for them to get the memo but they got it. Damn right they got it. Got it to the tune of 103 wins and your first world title in more than a century. So, like I said, to the victor goes the spoils. But here's the thing. Whenever there's a winner, there's also a loser. And who knows losing better than the city of Cleveland? If you thought I was going to let all those good vibes be the only thing we have... Oh, no. Mm -mm -mm. I had to put Cleveland over because they won an NBA title. Guess what happens when you lose and when you lose in the fashion you did? Remember earlier I mentioned that 3-1 lead that the Warriors blew? Well, y'all know what happened after that. Cleveland just couldn't shut up about it. The one thing they didn't need to happen was for the same trick to be turned on them. It's time for Cleveland to get its comeuppance, and it came a lot faster than expected. Pause. This is JSC Radio, and you're listening to the best of the People's Podcast. Two down, 10th inning, 8-7 to seven Cubs. The set by Montgomery, the pitch. Swung on a little dribbler toward third, charged by Bryant. Gloves throws to first. The Cubs have won the World Series for the first time since 1908. And a mobbing of Cubs players beyond the pitcher's mound. Michael Martinez with that slow dribbler to third. And Bryant made the play at first to end the ball game. What an incredible World Series. And in 10 innings, the Indians have fallen to the Chicago Cubs. By a final score of 8-7. to seven, Inarguably one of the most riveting and entertaining World Series in baseball history. Now anybody who knows me and anybody who's listened to this show before knows I don't have the greatest affinity for the mistake by the lake. I don't especially care for the cesspool in Northeast Ohio. I've made that very clear. I've made that clear to anybody who knows me. So watching... The Cleveland Indians, for them to get to that World Series, feeling that they, and not the Cubs, should be the feel-good story. That they, and not the Cubs, have been long-suffering and struggling. Well, 
For those of you who've paid attention to anything on the internets for the better part of the last, say, five, six months, a typical trope and theme has been running along here. Now, Cleveland, earlier this year, as you may remember, I did an entire episode on this, the Cavaliers won the NBA title. They broke Cleveland's 50-plus year streak of no team winning a championship. If you may not have heard, the Golden State Warriors had a 3-1 lead in that series before Draymond Green took one too many cheap shots, got himself suspended for Game 5, and flipped the entire momentum of that series on its ear. I'm sure you've heard that the Cavaliers came from 3-1 down because the Cavaliers haven't shut up about it ever since. And neither has anybody in the city of Cleveland. Now, to understand the people of Cleveland, you have to understand that that's the worst city on the planet. And those people are perpetual losers, and they're used to losing. They did it for 54 years. They did it very well. For them to finally get a sniff of prosperity after this entire trumped-up media campaign to make everybody feel sorry for that sorry-ass cesspool of a city, when they actually, I mean, you, I'm sure we've seen the 30 for 30, the Believe Land thing that was done on Cleveland, and then it was updated to include the Cavaliers winning the NBA title. Back when they won it in June, I was able to separate my disdain for the city of Cleveland from the mere insanity and just total savagery of LeBron James. How he almost single-handedly took that series by the nuts and dragged the Cavaliers to that NBA title. He earned it. Now, I ain't going to sit here and say the man didn't. He earned it. He absolutely earned it. But here's the thing. Ever since they won it, people have finally gotten to see what those of us who were in the state of Michigan and in the state of Ohio and in the state of Indiana and in the state of Pennsylvania and in the state of Illinois have been exposed to from Cleveland all these years. They somehow went from being this loving, cool, touching, feel-good type of story. They somehow managed to become the insufferable pigs that we've all known they are. Everywhere you look, the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. The Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. Hey, did you hear? The Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. The Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. The Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. And it's not just their idiot fans. It's not just, and we've seen how awesome some of them are. Yes, I know a few people from Cleveland. You want to know what's funny? The people I know from Cleveland feel the same way I do about a lot of Cleveland fans. So I'm not speaking out of turn when I say this. And we've seen that from Cleveland. But these aren't just the fans. It was the friggin' Cavaliers who were also out here with the Warriors, blew a 3-1 lead nonsense. I'm sure some of you have seen the picture of the Cavaliers World Championship rings. On the bottom of the World Championship ring is a little slot where there are seven jewels. The first two are white diamonds. The third is a ruby. The fourth is a diamond. The fifth, sixth, and seventh are rubies. And if you're wondering why that seems a little odd, these dudes were trolling the Warriors on their championship rings. I think I can come out and just say, and by the way, it's not just the Cavs, hell, the tribe, the Indians, they were a bunch of insufferable D-bags when they wanted to be, yelling and screaming at reporters about how you don't support them, and how dare you write us off, and don't even cover us, and they act like a bunch of petulant kids, and then of course you pile on top of that entire Sunday, 
the fact that the Indians are running around with the single most racist logo in American sports, and you just have a recipe for disliking them. So on top of everything else, there's suddenly insufferable fan base, which I would argue, I mean, nobody really understood what the Cleveland fan base would be like because, well, Cleveland has been shit for the better part of a half century until this year. But now that you've gotten to see what Cleveland is like when they actually win something, I put them right in the same category as Boston fans. But the thing is, Boston fans have shown you their ass repeatedly because all they do is seemingly win every couple of years. Every couple of years, a Boston team wins something. Hell, this year, there's a pretty good chance a Boston team is going to win the Super Bowl again because Tom Brady's a freak of nature. And those Boston fans are not exactly the easiest to deal with. They're a pretty insufferable lot themselves, no matter what the situation. So Cleveland is right there in Boston territory because they let any and everyone know that they want a championship. And they want a championship from coming back from down 3-1. As if people were going to forget the multitude of years between the drive and the fumble and the shot and Jose Mesa. Are we going to really forget all this? And the Willie Mays catch and Jim Brown quitting in his prime. And the Browns getting up and leaving and going to Baltimore. Let's not act like, hell, the Browns are 0-8 right now. They are really seriously challenging the Lions to become the second team on that Mount Rushmore of suck to go 0-16. And as the weeks go on, I find myself rooting hard for that to happen. Cleveland, when you pile all that together and then you just put the toothpick with Chief Wahoo's racist, smiling, red face staring at you, it made it pretty easy for me to rally behind the Chicago Cubs. When Cleveland gets up 3-1 in the World Series, they won the first game, lost the second, won the next two, games three and four, game three in Wrigley, the first World Series game in Wrigley in 71 years. Game ends one nothing. The following game, the following night, 7-2, cruising, up three games to one. And I joke to myself, hell, wouldn't it be something if after all the slander and all the all the chest bumping and all the gum bumping that that team gags away a 3-1 lead? Because the last thing I need to see are a bunch of jagoffs wearing headdresses and dressed up in red face being as racist as ever, celebrating a championship parade for a city that honestly may not fully deserve it. Well, that's when Game 5 happened. The Tribe took a one nothing lead in Game 5, and when Chris Bryant hit that home run and tied it, they never led again in the series. They never led again. They tied it a couple of times, but they never led again. The Cubs end up winning 3-2 in Game 5, ran them off the field in game six, and we all know what happened in game seven. It was one for the friggin' ages. And when we get to game seven, after the Tribe has pretty much gotten everybody's butt cheeks all tightened up because now it's game seven of the World Series, you were up 3-1, you had a lead in game five, and it got away from you. Now you're staring down the barrel of a game seven. Half your damn stadium is Cubs fans. And people were tweeting all during the game that, why are there so many Cubs fans there? Every time the Cubs get a hit, half the crowd, the crowd's going crazy. Why are there so many Cubs fans there? Here's a little secret. The Cleveland Indian fans aren't the best fan base in the world either. They don't show up for that team. What you saw those four games in Cleveland with all those Cubs fans taking over is something that I've been seeing for years when the Tigers go into Cleveland. Because more often than not, 
we'll take over Jacobs Field. I've, it's not uncommon to hear very loud let's go Tigers chants, especially in the years when the Tigers were waxing the Indians' ass. For the Cubs to do it in a World Series setting, it might be a little off-putting to people who don't follow the Indians or follow the AL Central. For those of us, it's like the Tiger fans do it. The White Sox fans do it. Last year, the Royals fans were taking that building over. When the Twins were good, the Twins fans took that place over. When they play the Reds, half the Reds fans take it over. When they play the Pirates, all those Pirate fans come streaming across from Western PA right into Cleveland and take the building over. It's what happens at Game 7. And here are a lot of the Cleveland Cavalier players, including one LeBron Uglacius James. LeBron James who once showed up at a Cleveland Indians playoff game in 2007 wearing Yankee gear, New York Yankee gear, proudly waving his Yankee hat in front of the Indian fans. Mr. Cleveland, Mr. I'ma bring a title back to the land, waving around Yankee gear, antagonizing those people in Cleveland. Now last night, he's up in his luxury box, no longer sitting in the stands, he's now in his luxury box, being the world's biggest cheerleader with, I'm guessing, J.R. Smith, who might have been five or six sheets to the wind at this point, snatching off his shirt. And when Rajay Davis, Rajay friggin' Davis, who for two years in Detroit, he didn't do much, but what he did do was hit left-handed pitching. And when Rajay Davis hits that home run in the eighth inning, you got LeBron jumping up and down and flexing in this god-awful Cleveland or nowhere shirt. Cleveland or nowhere? Really? Look, man, I'm not the biggest fan of the Detroit versus everybody shirts. I think it just screams inferiority complex when you wear shirts like that. But if it came down to it, I would buy a whole closet full of Detroit versus everybody shirts before my ass ever puts on some dumb shit like Cleveland or nowhere. But he's up there flexing in these shirts and going nuts. And the whole place is going crazy. They've tied this game. Then the rain delay happens. And then the Cubs win. And just to hear the air deflate out of that building, it's so lovely. And the slander on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and on Tumblr and in the streets was just flowing. Because somehow, as GQ put it, the city of Cleveland managed to take all of the goodwill that they had from winning an NBA championship, their first one in 54 years. They managed to take all that goodwill all that karma, and somehow manage to blow an opportunity at a second championship, the one that they really want in Cleveland, by the way. They want that World Series in Cleveland the way that we in Detroit want the Super Bowl, the way that the Cats out here in Philadelphia want a Super Bowl. In Cleveland, they want that World Series. They do. And to gag it away in the fashion that they did, considering the Cavs won an NBA title, but then spent the next five months gloating about the way they won the NBA title. Hell, two days prior to Game 7, you got LeBron James hosting a Halloween party, trolling the hell out of the Golden State Warriors for the 3-1 lead. Well, you know who chimed in just as that game ended, as the Cubs are dancing on the Indians' grave? Draymond Green, the guy whose cheap shot may have single-handedly kept the city of Cleveland from having one of the most brutal sports years of all time, chimed in with a simple phrase on Twitter, man, three games to one sucks. It does, doesn't it, Cleveland? Because, to be perfectly honest with you, I have zero, zero sympathy for you. You managed 
in what should be the greatest year ever for Cleveland sports to remind the world that you're still Cleveland. What other place could get the entire country behind them in June and have them dancing on their grave by November? You see, Cleveland, that's why it pays to be a good winner. All right? People in this country got behind you for some inexplicable reason they felt sorry for you. I'll never understand that. You guys had the golden ticket. Most people win a championship and they get a year, a full calendar year to just drink it in like it's the gift of Jericho. But only Cleveland could max out all that goodwill in less than six months. I'm actually proud of you for that because that takes skill. And what else took skill was getting through 2016, getting through this insane year, and being able to do it while slowly but surely building this podcast. I want to thank you guys so much for rolling with me. Thank you so much for staying up with me and riding with me through every single thing. And here's hoping that in so many ways, 2017 is a year of growth. It's a year of change. And for God's sakes, could it possibly be any worse than what we just went through the last 365 days? I got a couple more best ofs coming for you in the coming days and weeks. But I want to thank you once again. I want to tell you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pet spayed or neutered. And we are out of here. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and keep it right here for the next original episode of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. I'll see you next time, y'all. Thanks for coming out. God bless you. Good night. Check it out. This is JSC Radio.